On March the 21st, 2002, Janelle was three months pregnant, and we were flying to Seoul, Korea, and we were eight hours from landing when Janelle began to have serious stomach pains. Fortunately, there were a group of doctors on board the airplane. Unfortunately, they informed us that Janelle had miscarried. And I can't explain to you how horrible that moment was for us to lose a child, much less in the toilet of an airplane. It was the darkest moment we had ever experienced. We landed and went straight to a hospital. A friend of ours was with us who was Korean, and he went along and he translated. And after examining Janelle, they informed us that we had not lost the baby, but that the pregnancy was very unstable. And so they sent us to our hotel for Janelle to go to bed rest. Six hours later, we awoke, and um, Janelle did lose the baby, and we knew that she did because I got the baby out of the toilet and put her in a bowl. And we rushed to the hospital, and we did not have a translator, and it took hours in the emergency room to explain what was going on because they didn't speak English, and we didn't speak Korean, and it was brutal. Eventually, they take Janelle into this small room. They open the door and they motion for her to go in. And I see the equipment. I know what they're going to do. They're going to do an ultrasound. They're going to show her her womb. I start to go in and the orderlies stop me and they hold me back. And they hold me outside the room and they shut the door. I tried to explain that my wife needed me and I needed to be with her. And they held me outside the room while I'm hearing my wife crying and moaning. I know what she's seeing. I know that she's looking at this screen that shows her womb is empty. And that was the darkest moment of my life. Now, don't get me wrong. I know that the pain and suffering many of you have gone through. So many of you have talked to me about the dark moments in your life. I know that your pain and my pain doesn't even compare. I know that some of you have suffered so intensely. Your suffering has been a consuming darkness at the center of your life. And if I were to try to put words to it, it would be an insult. Because there are things in life for which words are hollow. And even worse than hollow, they are an offense. I know that some of you have been haunted by a hurt so deep that when it comes to that part of you, silence is the only appropriate language. So what do you do in those moments? What do you do in those moments when you are facing a darkness And a suffering that is so bleak, it drives you into this kind of terrible night. And then there are moments like that when the night is so dark and it is so cold that it feels like your very soul is getting frostbite. 
What do you do in those moments? When you're really, literally walking through the valley of the shadow of death and you are facing with full force a kind of hurricane that will absolutely destroy you. And in those moments you ask, where is God? Where, where is God when a child dies? Where is God when the teenager turns the corner in the car and has the wreck and he's, his life is over in an instant? Where is God when your parents are getting divorced? When chemo and radiation therapy, instead of helping or eating your body up, where is God in those moments? When all of your friends turn against you, when your babysitter abuses you, when you're burying your head in the pillow because you can hear mom and dad fighting and dad beating mom to a pulp, where is God in those moments? When you're so lonely that you don't think you can go another day, when you cry out and all you hear is a deafening silence, this is a terrible thing that we humans face over And over, it's been around since Adam and Eve ate the fruit. And all of creation broke. Some of the greatest heroes in the Bible face this situation. King David is the person in the Bible of all the human beings. More words are dedicated to him than any other human being in the Bible. More chapters, more verses. And he struggled with this. It was our psalm. Psalm 22. If you have a Bible, turn turn there with me. This incredible psalm, it's like a painting. I mean, it's, it's the geography of loneliness. The, bl- the bleak landscape of suffering and pain. The first words out of David's mouth, they're not some pious little platitude. It's a shriek. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? David is saying, God, you are a long way off right now of all the moments in my life. Why do you choose this moment to be out past Pluto somewhere? I can't see you. I can't hear you. I don't know you. My God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. (laughs) And then David reveals the real source of his suffering. You see, it's, David is not suffering like somebody who once believed in God and no longer does and now wonders back, was it all a fairy tale? That's a, that's a suffering. I'm probably going to talk about that in a few weeks, the suffering of doubt, when all of a sudden you, you sense that you've bought into a myth. No, David says, you are holy. See, he's still, this is the suffering of someone who still believes. You are holy. You are enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted. You delivered them. To you, they cried. And they were delivered. You rescued them. And you, they trusted. You see, look, he's saying, look, what, if, what about this, God? I'm trusting you. You're a thousand miles off. I'm my father, my grandfather, my grandparents, the people of Israel. When they trusted in you, you delivered them. Why are you changing, God? At verse 6. But I am a worm. I'm not a man. I'm scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. This is the suffering of someone who's been deserted. 
This is not the suffering of a person who wants to be married and can't be married. This is a person of a person who has been married and has been walked out on. Yet you are he who took me from, my, from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Look, God, from birth I've trusted you. I have done it right. And now in this moment, you're gone. I've played by your rules all along. And now when I need you most, you are not playing by the rules. Not only are you far off, you have deserted me. So he prays in verse 11. Be not far from me for trouble is near and there is none to help. Look, God, if you're not going to heal me, at least be close to me. At least close the gap of the distance. At least come close, God. And then he describes his enemies. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open their mouths at me like a ravening and a roaring Lion, I mean, some of you know what it's like to have enemies, whether it's your own body that is turning against you or people you love or people you've never loved. You know what it's like to have enemies. And when you see them, all you can see is a ravenous thing destroying you. And look how it's affecting him. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. And then the cruelest, you lay me in the dust of death. God, you are my enemy. You're the one that's killing me. You're the one that's putting me in this. You are the source of my pain and my suffering. The one I trusted. So not only are you killing me, now you're gone. Dogs encompass me. A company of evil doers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them for my clothing. They can't. Look, he's saying, my life is utterly desolate. Where is God? For David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken? This is is so similar to the questions that I've heard countless times in the hospital or the funeral home or the divorce court or the house left empty that was once filled with romance and joy and family. And, And you know what's so difficult? I mean, what's really difficult about these moments, it's when your faith crashes against the rock of your experience. And it's your faith that crumbles into dust. In those moments when everything you thought you believed fails in light of the brutal reality that you are living, when your faith runs headlong into the raw experiences of life, Victor Hugo and Les Miserables said, in these kind of moments, there is an earthquake in your soul. The very tectonic plates of your life shift. So what's the answer? Where is God? Just this week, 
Janelle and I are our very best friends. They're a family member of theirs, a young mother. She's jogging. A car hits her and kills her. And she has kids at home. Where, is, where was God? You know, just a few inches. Well, there's the age-old philosophical solution. Either God is completely loving, but not completely powerful, or He's completely powerful, but He's not completely loving. Right? So this idea is, look, and this goes back for millennia, this idea is that if God is all loving, He's not going to let that happen to that mother, so He must not be powerful enough to stop it. Or, worse, He's powerful enough to stop it. What does it mean that He doesn't? That He's not loving. He's some mad scientist who plays cruel tricks. Then there are others, and they can't go there. They can't abandon their faith. They can't stop believing in God because the existence of God and the existence of evil, it's so difficult. What do they do? I think it might be what some of you maybe have done in this room. You'd like to stop believing. You wish that you could, but you've been messed up. God has been unfair to you. Some of you have tried to become an atheist. You've tried to walk away. You're just not a very good atheist. (laughs) Right? I mean, from, from, from birth, you've had too many experiences, and you can't. You just can't go there. So what do you do? You lash out at God in anger. And you grow bitter. As all of that frustration and pain is unleashed toward God. Why would you ever trust Him again? All He is, is a monster. A cruel, unyielding, cold tyrant. A mafia boss whose power is everywhere. And He is demanding His pound of flesh. You've tried to love him. You've tried to follow him. But he's just too unkind. He's let you down too much. Is there another option? There is. There's the option that we heard in our scripture readings this morning. It's the option of pairing up Psalm 22 with the crucifixion. Right? If you have your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 15. So here's Jesus. He's scourged. (laughs) He's crucified. (laughs) They nailed a human being to a piece of wood. A living, writhing body with muscle and tissue. They put a nail through it to a piece of wood. And as he's hanging there in that awful moment, Verse 34, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where did we hear those words before? What's he doing? He's he's taking up David's prayer. He's praying David's prayer of pain and abandonment. Now look, Jesus lived in an oral culture. More than 90% of this culture was illiterate. They couldn't read. It was an oral culture. They had tremendous amounts of information memorized. And one of the popular ways that rabbis would teach is they would quote the first line of a story of the Bible. 
And because there was so much memorized information, Jews listening to a rabbi teaching, they would kind of download the whole passage into their consciousness because they had it memorized. Like me saying the only thing we have to fear, all of a sudden fear itself. You can download a whole cultural moment into your consciousness. So here's Jesus praying this prayer. Uh, did any of you read uh, Night by Elie Wiesel? Yeah. I, I, um, I'll never forget, there's a scene in it that I, I had to read in high school, and I, 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 I haven't forgotten it. He, there's um, something was stolen, and the SS are executing some of the prisoners. It says the SS hanged two Jewish men and a youth in front of the whole camp. The men died quickly. You know how you normally die from hanging as your neck breaks, right? What happens when you're a teenager who's already been starved and you don't weigh enough to break your neck when the rope drops? The death throes of the youth lasted for half an hour. They made the camp stand there and watch. Where is God? Where is he? Someone asked behind me in the, the rows of prisoners having to watch this. As the youth still hung in torment in the noose, after a long time, I heard the man call again, Where is God now? And I heard a voice in myself answer, Where is he? He is here. He is hanging there on the gallows. It's an ambiguous statement. I think what Wiesel is saying here is that the evil he endured in witness in that moment killed God. That on that day, he stopped believing in God. Because surely, if God existed, he would not have allowed such atrocities. And many others have come to the same conclusion. I think Wiesel's right in his words. I think he's wrong in his meaning. See, there's another option. You see, I could say that God was there swinging on the gallows. Because God came to this earth as Jesus. And he entered the full experience the full extent of our suffering and when jesus is quoting the prayer psalm 22 david's prayer one of the things that is happening is he's identifying with david he's saying david i'm here with you even in your abandonment See, Jesus entered into our pain. He experienced our horrors and our losses and even our sense of abandonment. And he even experienced death. Jesus Christ, who was tortured and murdered, was God. He delivered us. This is the incredible idea. He delivered us through suffering, not from suffering. The Bible describes Jesus in Isaiah as despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with the bitterest grief. You see those agonies that you've experienced? So has he. The loss that is so bitter, that's a cancer in your life, he has known it too. Our God is not a distance God. That song, Bette Midler, from a distance God is watching us, that's a pile of crap. What kind of God is that? 
That's the very God that Jesus is showing us is not our God. You've experienced physical suffering. Jesus was whipped and beaten and nailed to a cross. You've, experienced, you've suffered in your relationships. Jesus' closest friends walked out on him, turned their back on him, abandoned him. You've suffered public humiliation. Jesus was stripped naked in public and nailed to a cross that way. Part of what this means is that no matter how tragic or traumatic, God will be there. He is there. He's even there in the silence, walking or crawling or however you are getting through it. He's promised and he's made good on that promise that the tragedies of this life are not the final word. So if you are tired of suffering alone, I invite you to Christ. I mean, listen to this amazing fact. The God of the universe who created everything that is. He took on flesh. He lived a human life and he suffered a horrible death. Not because he deserved it. That's what makes it even more horrible. He was perfect. He suffered that because you you deserved it and I deserved it. He paid our debt. He entered into our darkness that we deserved. But because he was God, he conquered death. And he rose from the grave. And he lives forever. But there's something else about suffering that I am learning the very hard way. If you have your Bibles, look at Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Paul, who himself was no stranger to suffering, he says, I want to know Christ. Now this is something lots of Christians have said. There's even a very popular contemporary worship song, I want to know you. I want to know you more. And so for Paul, he says, I want to know Christ. And then the very next phrase, and the power of his resurrection. Who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want to know the power of God to raise the dead? And then Paul says something that no evangelical I've ever been with has ever prayed. See, Paul, it's kind of like a train of thought. I want to know Christ. Oh, if I'm going to know Christ, I'm going to get to know his power, the power of his resurrection. But, oh, that means I have to know His suffering and the fellowship of his sufferings. (laughs) It's funny, that contemporary worship song that's written on this verse leaves off. It doesn't have a a verse. I want to know you. I want to know you more. And I want to suffer with you. It just doesn't. It's hard to sell records, you know. (laughs) What does that mean? I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. Two weeks after Sidney died. Um, Janelle says to me, Aubrey, you remember when I was in that room and I was crying? She said, I was so alone. And I was begging God for you to come into the room. And then I felt you putting your hand on my head like you do at night when we go to sleep. And I looked up and there was no one in the room. And I know that it was Christ. Now hear me close. Don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. I long for the day when I'll hold Sydney and tickle her and chase her 
But Christ gave us something better. He gave himself to Janelle. Now that doesn't in any way take away the suffering. What I'm saying to you is that I'm learning in my life through that and through some other suffering that I've gone through since then. I'm learning that suffering is an invitation to greater intimacy with God. I wish that he had lined up the laws of the universe in some other way. But he didn't. The Sermon on the Mount says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, in Greek, this is called the divine passive. Who's doing the comforting? It's not, they shall be comforted by... It doesn't say. It's it's structured in the Greek. It's that God is doing the comfort. Why are you blessed when you're mourned? Because it's an invitation to experience an intimacy with God as He comforts you. So maybe this is why the closer you get to God, Sometimes it seems like in those moments when you're so close to God and you pray prayers like Paul, I want to know you, then you get clobbered. (laughs) See, there's a part of the Father's heart that is broken. It is broken over this world. It's broken over the Rwandan genocide. It's broken over all the pain and suffering you and I inflict on one another. It is broken. It is broken over what our... Wickedness has done to Christ. And the only way that you and I can know the Father's heart, that part of the Father's heart, is to enter into that suffering. Suffering is very often an invitation into an intimacy with Christ. So if you're going through sickness and disease, I encourage you to reach out into the cold darkness and know that Christ is there. If you're suffering divorce and you've been abandoned, reach out and not only will you find Christ, you will find that He is closer than the air you breathe. He is closer than you ever imagined. And when you watch a loved one die, reach out and there is a present Savior. Those of you who have awful memories of scars, abuse, reach out to Christ. And in the hour of our death, Pascal said that at the end of it all, we face death alone. That's what I read in Psalm 22, is really the awful loneliness of that moment. And in the hour of our death, we can know That even there, we're not alone. So many of you know that one year ago, in the spring a year ago, I had a breakdown. I was going through a really difficult time. I was suffering and something in me broke. Um, And I'm basically catatonic. My parents drive 12 hours. They get our kids. They take them back to be with them. My wife loads me into a car. 
and we drive to my family's land in north central Louisiana where my great-grandfather and grandfather and my mom and where I spent my childhood. And for six weeks, I cleared a field with a chainsaw and fire and a bush hog. And um, in the darkest of all of the, that experience, there was a moment where Christ very clearly said to me, you can trust my wounds. Not this verse in Isaiah that by his wounds were healed. But the verse in Proverbs, better the wounds of a friend than the kisses of an enemy. He said to me, Aubrey, I'm wounding you and you can trust me. And so wherever you are, I say to you, at the heart of Christianity is this, that God is smarter than anybody else. And he's good. And those two things held together. It makes all the difference. Let's pray.